It turns out a lot of people don't expect me to be a pastor when they meet me. I don't know if it's the being a girl thing or the being a millennial thing, but typically when I tell people I'm a pastor, the reaction I get is something like, really? No, really? No, seriously, stop pulling my leg. You're a pastor? And then every single time comes the inevitable question. So do you actually buy it? I mean, let's be serious here. Do you actually buy the story of the cross? Do you actually buy that there was this guy named Jesus who lived and did miracles and died and then he was resurrected from the dead? I mean, really, do you actually buy that Jesus is the only way to heaven? I mean, can I be a Christian and also be a Buddhist and just be a good person and still go to heaven? I mean, doesn't it all just seem a little narrow-minded to think that there's just one way? And I hear that. I mean, it feels pretty audacious, doesn't it, for us to say that out of all of the world's religions and out of all of the theories that we have the only one that's actually true. That Jesus really is the only savior and he's the only way to heaven. That the life and the way that's laid out in scripture is the best way to order our lives and to live in relationship with one another. That there's such a thing as sin and there's such a thing as righteousness. That there's one way to receive forgiveness and grace and that there's only one true God who has come and will come again. I mean, it is audacious to claim that. And it's bold and it's brave and it's true. And sometimes it's really, really uncomfortable to say out loud. And I mean, if it's uncomfortable for me as a pastor to say out loud sometimes in those conversations where people are saying, do you really buy this? I'm guessing you've had the moments where it's uncomfortable for you too. Well, we're in this series this summer where we are asking the questions that everyone else is asking about Christians. So in the first week, we asked, why are Christians so divided? And in the second week, we asked, why are Christians so anti? And today we are asking a question that's been this common chorus for Christians all throughout the centuries. Why are Christians so narrow-minded? So if you've ever been asked this question or you've been tempted to ask this question yourself in your own faith journey, you are not alone. In fact, in this 2019 Barner research study that came out, they asked non-Christians to describe their Christian friends and neighbors and narrow-minded, it actually topped the list. Narrow-minded, it actually beat out puritanical and invasive and uptight and foolish and racist and selfish and hurtful and unhappy. More than half, of all non-Christians described their Christian friends and neighbors as narrow-minded. Narrow-minded also beat out hopeful and caring and friendly and encouraging and generous and misunderstood and good-humored. That's problematic, right? Because why choose a way that more people describe as narrow-minded than anything else? And how do we make something that other people see as narrow-minded actually attractive and desirable and worth committing your entire life to? I mean, that's always my reaction when people ask if I actually believe this, even if they think it seems a little narrow-minded, is I say, why else, unless I actually believe that this is actually true and that this is the best way to live, why else would I dedicate my entire life 
and all my beliefs and all my sacrifice to this way of following Jesus if I didn't believe deep down that this was 100% true. So how do we press into that question today and come out of today even better prepared to live a life that honors and follows Jesus and yet is also still attractive and invitational and worth following and dedicating our lives to? Well, Jesus owned the idea that following him meant committing to a very narrow way. In fact, in Matthew 7, starting in verses 13 and 14, Jesus said this about his way. He said, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many, for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. And yet, just a few sentences earlier, Jesus also said this. He said, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. And the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. So this way that Jesus has it, it's narrow, but it's not hidden. This way is narrow, but it's not bad. This way is narrow, but it is not impossible to find. You see, narrow way doesn't have to mean narrow-minded. In fact, the fact that we've been invited to a way that is narrow and it is unique and it is set apart, that is the whole point of being God's people. From the very beginning, God's people have been called to be set apart, to be holy, and to commit themselves to living lives of personal and relational purity in a culture that will test and tempt and try them. And the biggest trouble that God's people have gotten themselves in from the very beginning, as we'll see when we jump into Judges later this summer, is when the people of God believe that they can have it all when they believe that they can have all the benefits of culture and still have the set-apartness offered by God, when they believe that they can have the blessing without the calling, when they believe that they can be successful in doing things the wrong way and not have to reap the consequences of that instead of reaping the benefits of being successful and faithful in God's eyes. I mean, that's the whole point of the Sabbath for God's people is that it makes them less productive than the culture around them in the short term. But in the long term, it's a better way to live. You see, God has repeatedly throughout centuries and cultures called his people to realize that faithfulness to him will call for sacrifice and it'll call for uniqueness and it'll call for wrestling and a reliance on the grace that he offers to try to walk the narrow way Again, Jesus invites us to follow this narrow way, but it is a way that we get to walk with our eyes wide open. It's a way that we walk knowing that the one who goes before us and beside us and behind us, that he will guard us. And he invites us to walk it having created that narrow path and walked that narrow path himself. It's because we're invited to walk the narrow way that we are invited to live lives of great specificity, lives committed to carrying out the uniqueness of the cross. In Ephesians 5, we are called to do something that is so big 
and it's so bold and it's so audacious that it would be impossible for us to do if not for the one who calls us toward it. You see, Paul, in writing under the guidance of the Holy Spirit to the church in Ephesus, he writes this in verse one of chapter five. He says, therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. You see that call, it's right up there with be holy as I am holy. It is this big call to an imperfect people, a call that seems this to be this impossible life of walking and relating with people and with God as God does with other imperfect people. And yet this call, it comes with its own beauty. In verse two, it says, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. The call is to walk narrowly in the way of love and sacrifice. It's not merely to walk this strange path to sort of self-flagulate ourselves in the way of the gospel, but it is to follow the example and the way of Christ, the ultimate example of sacrifice who walked a sinless life all the way to the ultimate sacrifice of the cross, who modeled what it looked like to have a perfect relationship with the Father and with others, and who invited us to seek a narrow way that can only be found in him. And in doing so, to have not only our eternities, but actually to have our entire lives transformed by the story of the gospel. Paul goes on to get really specific about what this narrow way looks like. In verses three through four, he says this, he says, but sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness, it must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness or foolish talk nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. And then continuing in verse 15, Paul writes this. He says, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is, and do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making a melody to the Lord with all your heart, giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now, the culture of the church in Ephesus who Paul was writing to, it's not unlike the culture of today, where things like immorality or crude joking or drinking to excess wasn't rare, but they were actually invited norms. It was a part of how most people lived their lives. And we're choosing to walk this narrow way in the way of Jesus would be seen as being narrow-minded and would even involve some social risk. But what I love about what Paul does here is that Paul doesn't just provide a list of don'ts for the church, he provides a list of do's. In other words, behind every no is an emphatic yes. In Ephesians, it's not no filthy or foolish or crude talking, but it's also yes to thanksgiving. It's not no foolish thinking, but it's yes to actually understanding who God is and what he calls us to. It's not just no drinking to excess, but it's yes 
to having these healthy, fulfilling relationships with one another, where we address each other with the hope that can only come from God. Yes to thankfulness to God, and yes to gladly submitting to one another as Christ taught and Christ modeled. The model that's set up all throughout scripture, it's not just some model of self-regulation, of, of just embracing pain and awkward sacrifice in order to prove how much better and how much holier we are than everybody else in the world. Instead, it's intentionally choosing to pursue the way of God for God's glory and for our neighbor's good. We pursue the way of God because the way of God really is the better way to live. I love the way that covenant theologian Klein Snodgrass summed it up in his section of, of the summary of the scripture in the book of Ephesians. He says this, the Christian faith, it is not a passive religion. It is an aggressive pursuit of the productive and the beneficial. You see here at ECC, following the way of Jesus means that we say yes to a life of simplicity to choosing what's truly good over everything that glitters, to focusing in really well to the unique path that God has called each of us to instead of dividing our attention. It means that we say yes to having conversations with one another when we disagree, to instead of camping out in our ideological circles, actually treating one another as brothers and sisters and going together to the scriptures to ask the age old covenant questions of where is it written and how goes your walk? It means that we say yes to choosing community. We say yes to building something really special where kids and teens and married couples and singles and parents and grandparents and cool aunts and uncles and people of every job and every background can find true family where we don't have to be lonely because we have each other, where we can be known and we can know one another deeply, means that we say yes to raising up the next generation instead of just waiting for them to grow up. We say yes to investing in camps and retreats and awesome kids and youth programming that actually helps to lead our kids and teens in a direction that's really life-giving, that introduces them to this God that we love and the scripture that we rely on, on ways that actually make a difference in their life today and that builds really good habits for the future. We say yes to entrusting our kids and teens as leaders and to surrounding them with really great, safe adults who love them but love God more. These people that they can look to as examples of what it looks like to actually follow Jesus in the mess of everyday life. It also means that we say yes to having really good fun. We say yes to things like game nights and food trucks and outdoor services and all age camps and softball games. We say yes to laughter and to family stories and to church memories and to special moments where we get to celebrate one another together. It means we say yes to serving one another in our community. We say yes to making a positive difference in the lives of our brothers and sisters locally and globally, not because it makes us feel good, but because it models to a wanting world what it looks like to belong to one another and to love one another and to care for one another as Christ modeled and taught in the gospels. And when we follow this way, we find that though the path may be narrow and though the call may be great, we live the life 
we have always longed for the most. In fact, here at ECC, we invite you to judge for yourself which path makes the most sense, to follow in the way of God who created us and who knows what's best, or to follow in some other way. Which path brings more joy and more contentment? What brings more peace, more satisfaction? What leads to better relationships with one another and better relationships with God? What transforms our lives more for the better? You see, Jesus modeled what it looks like to live the life we were created for. He modeled what it was like to live a perfect, shame-free life and to be in deep community with people who were trying to figure out this thing together. He modeled what it was like to be fully human and to experience all of the temptation and trials that come along with being human and to turn to the Father in those moments, in deep community with God and armed with the truth that scripture provides for us. He modeled what it was like to live with really gentle grace for people in really difficult situations, fellow wanderers on this pathway of trying to discern what the Lord calls of us, and to hold his voice steady with the conviction that only truth provides to be able to speak both words of grace and at the same time, words of deep truth. He modeled what it was like to count the cost and to still choose sacrifice, to trust that the Father is enough for us and that his way is good and that his plans are good and that his presence and his joy is all that we long after. His is the only voice we long to hear congratulating us. In his invitation, again and again, it was comprised of these two simple words. Follow me. Follow me down this narrow path. Follow me and my example. Follow me through all the twists and the turns. Trust me enough to know that I know where I am leading you. Follow me. Now imagine with me for a second if we truly followed him down this path. Imagine if we followed him in each area in our lives, at home, at school, at work, in the community. Imagine if we chased after and we pursued this narrow path, this good that he's laid before us. If we diligently sought him and we sought his plan, if we were so consumed by scripture that we were living it out in everything we did, and if we were choosing the emphatic yes time and time again. Now imagine how that could transform our family gatherings or our neighborhood barbecues, our workplaces, our soccer or baseball or basketball games, our coaching, our working, our resting and our playing. Imagine if in five years, Barna came to Shoreview and they took a study of this area and they asked our non-Christian neighbors to describe the people of ECC, what would they say? Imagine for a moment, if narrow-minded was one of the last things on the list for them. Imagine if what topped the list were words like fulfilled. It just really seems like they have this deep satisfaction that wells up from inside of them. Or joyful, in the midst of a global pandemic, they have this deep sense of joy and hope. Or fair, they always play and they always coach fair. They're always looking to do what's right or honest, they're truth tellers even when it's convenient. I know I can trust them. 
grounded. They can't be shaken too much. They have this really deep foundation. It's like they belong to something that they actually think will last or devoted. They're committed to God and at the same time, they are committed to this place that God has called them to or gracious, they're forgiving and they're really good at asking for forgiveness too. Imagine if another word on that list was invitational. It just seems like they've experienced something that's so good that they can't help but keep inviting us into it. Imagine if other words on that list were things like good tippers and honest students and open and vulnerable. Imagine if they described us as family. Imagine if they said that we were hopeful. Imagine if this narrow way that we followed, if it led us to a wide open kingdom in which we are free to pursue what God's called us to, the things that he's created us for, what's really best in life. Klein Snodgrass says that this life is only possible if we're attentive and we're self-analytical. He says Christians cannot expect to succeed in life with God without being honest with themselves and God about their chosen destiny. He says any traveler inattentive to direction and progress will never arrive at the destination. So we want to invite you to walk with us as we're honest with ourselves and with God. And with us is the really good news. It's in our name, God with us. We do not do this alone. Hebrews 12, one through two, the verse that we're inviting you to memorize with us in this season, it tells this. It says, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and every sin that clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Let us look to Jesus the author and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. We lay aside and we look to Jesus and we run with endurance the way that he has called us to go. And in doing so, we join this great cloud of witnesses that has gone before us, people of every generation and of every tribe and of every tongue, who have committed themselves to the narrow way of the sacrifice savior, the narrow way that opened up a whole world of possibilities for loving God and loving our neighbors more and more each day. And one of the ways that we join with those who have gone before us and with our brothers and sisters all over the globe is in the holy act of communion. It's this meal that our Lord instituted before his death a meal that he sealed with a promise of receiving his life as a result, receiving the possibility of us being able to live the life we've always longed for most. And at this table, we are invited to share in all of our brokenness in Christ's blessedness. We are invited to take and eat a meal that nourishes our spirit even more than our body, that renews us for this journey ahead as difficult and narrow as it may be. And we are invited to pause and quite soberly to reflect on where we've been and on where we're going. The Covenant Book of Worship says that we come to the sacred table not because we must, but because we may. Not to testify that we are righteous, but that we sincerely love our Lord Jesus Christ and we desire to be his true disciples. Not because we are strong, but because we are weak. 
not because we have any claim on the grace of God, but because in our frailty and in our sin, we stand in constant need of God's mercy and God's help. Here at Emmanuel, the Lord's table is open to all who can examine themselves and sincerely pray the prayers we're about to pray. The Holy Scriptures tell us the story of that first Holy Communion like this. It says, on the, Lord, the night the Lord Jesus was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat of this bread and you drink of this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so together we confess as one voice and we come to the Father as one. Heavenly Father, to whom all hearts and minds are open and all desires are known, cleanse the thoughts of our hearts by the inspiration of your Holy Spirit, that we may more perfectly love you and more worthily magnify your holy name. We confess that we are sinners and we cannot save ourselves. We have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole hearts. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves for the sake of your son, Jesus Christ. Have mercy on us. Forgive us, renew us, and lead us that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your holy name. We are not worthy for these gifts which we are about to receive, but say the word and we'll be made clean. And together we pray the prayer that Jesus taught his disciples to pray. Praying, our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is your kingdom and your power and your glory forever and ever. Amen.